Sarah, I have a question for you. Uh-huh. What's your ideal romantic comedy? Oh. What comprises the ideal romantic comedy for you? Okay, my favorite romantic comedy of all time is Courage of the Jungle. Oh, really? So, fish out of water. I think romantic comedies as we know them are born out of the screwball tradition. So, like, mm. some sort of battle with against and within heteronormativity is, is part of a romantic comedy as I understand them. I think we're ready <laughs> to go beyond that, but I feel mm. like if you're going to do that, do it in a way where the guy is sweet and wonderful and naked all the time. <laughs> 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 and that's also what Magic Mike XXL is like. Yeah. <laughs> so you're listening to Wire Dads. We today are watching Pretty Woman and... I'm curious, Sarah, do you think Pretty Woman has anything in common with George of the Jungle? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is a fish out of water. It's about someone mm. going to a, a penthouse, which is also what happens to Ursula and George of the Jungle. That's most of what I can think of. <laughs> <laughs> I was glad that we had Maggie Rose on because she was able to draw really interesting parallels between the expectations of Julia Roberts' character in this movie and in her position and sort of being a fish out of water in among rich people and mm -hmm. then just the experience of being a performing artist and having to do that same thing. Like, I mm -hmm. thought that was a really fascinating takeaway that I don't think, you know, we might not have gotten from another perspective. I feel like our sweet spot on this show or one of them is talking with people about movies that they feel very ambivalent about, which is like, not like I don't know how to feel about it, but like I feel multiple ways about it. And because of that, mm. I'm going to be stuck to this movie for a while. I think that that's what happens. That's the magic. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I feel that way about this movie too. Like, I think that is the thing of romantic comedies. Like when they're bad, you can really see all the seams and the ugliness is really apparent. And, like, and when they're good, actually, I think an ideal romantic comedy for me also is While You Were Sleeping, mm. because like great true crime, it makes you understand why someone would do something that in summary sounds really worrying, which is <laughs> pretending to be married to a guy who's in a coma, who you don't know. All right. I think, I think we're ready to do this. All right. Nice. Just a couple of quick notes before we begin. Uh, first, Wired Ads is made possible with support by Knack Factory, which is a commercial and creative content video production company based in Portland, Maine, though it does work throughout these here United States. If you need commercial video produced or you need content made for those hungry digital eyes and ears, get in touch with the folks at Knack Factory. And it's also made with your support, you. Thank you so much for supporting Wired Ads via Patreon at patreon.com slash Wired Ads. Uh, there is bonus content. Uh, there are episodes about various things, whatever is striking us at the moment. Our next one is going to be about room 237. It's fun. <laughs> it's fun. Support us there. It's fun. If you're not able to support, we totally understand. These are perpetually strange financial times. And if you are, thank you so much for your support. We're either way, we're just happy that you're here and along for the ride. Two other quick notes. One, each of our episodes comes with a playlist that's over on Spotify. Um, you can find it in the episode notes or you can find it on social. The playlist is inspired by our conversation about whatever movie we're talking about this week. And you can find one about Pretty Woman in these show notes. And then finally, I, Alex, have a show called Nashville Demystified. It's about conversations with people from Nashville because that's typically where I am and that's where I'm headed again post-plague and we're coming back after a year off uh, off the podcast air and our first conversation is with maggie rose it comes out this week so if you haven't gotten enough of maggie rose from this episode look up national demystified and you can find an even more detailed chat about maggie's career life insights etc thank you so much maggie for being our first guest on our first episode back all right let's go talk with maggie rose about pretty woman a million dollars yes wow your folks must be really proud, huh? People are looking at me. They're not looking at you, they're looking at me. The stores are not nice to people, I don't like it. Stores are never nice to people, they're nice to credit cards. Edward would love that tie. Give her the tie, the tie. Take off the tie. Give her the tie. The tie. He really wants to do this. He would no, go. I'm sorry. I was in here yesterday. You wouldn't wait on me? Oh. You work on commission, right? Uh, yes. Big mistake. Big. Huge. I have to go shopping now. When, actually, when Edward was with me, 
He didn't blow off billion-dollar deals. I think that uh, Edward's with you. That's what I think. Come on, Edward, I gave you 10 years. I devoted my whole life to you. This is bullshit. This is such bullshit. It's the kill you loved, not me. I made you a very rich man doing exactly what you loved. So where are we going? It's a surprise. If I forget to tell you later, I had a really good time Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. We have a wonderful guest today. Yes. We have a wonderful guest that actually listens to our show and then reached out and said that they listened to the show. What? And now here they are. I didn't know that. I thought this was a classic Alex Steed reach out to catch a rising star, <laughs> ask if they would like to come on and inexplicably they say yes situation. This is a, a wild situation in which a listener is also going to be a guest. And we're so excited for that. So guest... Who are you? I'm Maggie Rose, huge fan of Wire Dads and Nashville-based recording artist and songwriter. Prolific songwriter. Lots of songs. <laughs> Lots of songs. Well, I've been here for 13 years and uh, gone through a few different evolutions, I guess. I started off in country music, and it's a wild climate, country music here at Nashville and Music mm. Row and all the inner workings of the politics that go on, but I found myself, especially with this town, how it's evolving and all these great artists of different genres moving here, that my music was evolving along with it. And hmm. I have an album coming out this summer mm. that I actually got to create most of before we went into the pandemic. And we call it American Rock and Soul, and I made it down at Fame Studios in Muscle Shoals, mm. Alabama, which is known for all this great music that brought me to this these sensibilities. It's been fun to find my sound over the years and shun the, the politics of Music Row that I didn't really like in the beginning and find my voice. That's what it's all about. I think it's so satisfying to find success after shunning stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it is. And just started a podcast as well over the pandemic called Salute the Songbird. Oh, sweet. Just like Barack Obama. <laughs> just like him. <laughs> yeah. It, it's been cool because we're used to socializing with our fellow musicians and running into each other on the road. And all my guests are, are women or strong supporters of women or people who have that mm. perspective, the female perspective in the music industry, both on stage and behind the scenes. And it's been awesome. We had Kathy Valentine on of mm. the Go-Go's and oh, cool. Nancy Wilson of Heart. But then I'm also trying to introduce yeah. some of my super talented friends who are some of this industry's best kept secrets. And it's been a great way to mm. listen to other people and and the research part is awesome because I just get to listen to great records and read people's memoirs. <laughs> it's kind of like your show where you get to watch awesome movies and find the dad and the daddy. <laughs> and Alex, it's like your other show too. Nashville Demystified? Yeah. That's the one. So I have a tie. I have a tie to Nashville. And, and Maggie, I don't at all expect you to remember this, but Carolyn, who produces the show, and I were at the Opry backstage once because we just had an opportunity to do that, and you were performing. Uh, we met you super in passing backstage while you were sort of giving direction to the musical director about what exactly you needed. And you sang your ass off. Yeah, if anyone gets a chance to spend time listening to you sing, they're going to be better for it. So I'm glad that you're here, and I, I am glad that this is happening. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Uh, I find you guys wildly entertaining and I feel weirdly like we're friends, especially during this time. <laughs> I've heard both of your voices so much and just great conversations, lots of humor, great movie choices. Oh, thank you. We're, we're grateful that you're joining us for Pretty Woman, which is a movie I thought that I had not seen and then in watching it was like, I know every scene in this movie somehow. <laughs> <laughs> you 
you were just born knowing it. Yeah. I'm like, oh, that guy and that guy yeah. and this thing. Watch out for Jason Alexander. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's not farewell in this movie. Uh-huh. <laughs> it takes a real turn. Mm. Sarah, can you tell us what we just experienced? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So I am so excited to be doing this episode because when I was 19, I was, like, pretty depressed. And so there were two movies that I watched practically every day. And the two movies were The Usual Suspects and Pretty Woman. (laughs) The Usual Suspects is harder to understand. But Pretty Woman, like, I don't think I'd watched it a single time since I was 19. But I, like, I know every line. I know the whole thing. Like, I remember all the little moments. So Pretty Woman is the story of Edward Lewis, played by Richard Gere, who's a sad corporate raider who's come to L.A., to bend over and and fuck another big corporation and (laughs) cut it up and sell its subsidiary parts. And while he's in town, he basically borrows his friend and lawyer, Philip Stuckey's car, which is, uh, is it a manual transmission? Yes. Yes, it's it's like a specific sort of manual transmission, apparently. Yeah, and it's a Lotus Esprit. Which I just learned about because the guy who designed the DeLorean had previously worked for Lotus. Oh. Those are like English racing cars, I believe. I might be flying too close to the sun with that last statement, but the first one is definitely (laughs) true. (laughs) And so he's trying to get to the Regent Beverly Wilshire, which is his hotel where he's staying, and... He's having trouble driving, and so he pulls over on Sunset Boulevard, and Julia Roberts, who is a sex worker trying to drum up business because her roommate just took all their rent money and spent it on drugs, goes over and is like, I'll help you find your hotel for 20 bucks. So they go, and then he finds her really charming, and so he asked to buy her services for $100, and so she comes into the hotel, and then he asks her to spend the night, and then he asks her to spend the week, and then they fall in love, and then he becomes a good person. And then he defends her against his friend who tries to assault her, and he decides to not go through with the corporate rating and to be a good business guy and that he wants to build things with the old man because she made him talk about his dad. And then he goes to her and he brings flowers and he plays opera and they kiss and they live happily ever after the end. Gary Marshall, directed by Gary Marshall. (laughs) (laughs) Maggie, you said that this is a favorite. Can you tell us more about your relationship with this movie? Well, it's a favorite in the same way that Sarah said that it's just something that you kind of watch. It's a prerequisite of being a woman born in the 80s or early 90s. It's the movie that made Julia, which is so interesting. Yeah, I love how charming she is. She's definitely offbeat. There's some heavy-handed parts of the movie where she's, like, super safe and she has the buffet of condoms and, you know, (laughs) she's clean. She's a clean prostitute and we all love her. And it being her movie, Mm -hmm. I like that. And the unlikely heroine who ironically wants to be rescued and has always imagined that, which is kind of a strange dream to have as a child to be rescued by a prince, but... It works out for her, and we all like to see that, right? Because it doesn't work out for every working sex worker mm-hmm. in uh, Hollywood downtown. Mm. And Richard Gere, yeah, his character, it's like you like him because I feel like they are so stingy in what they actually reveal about him as a character because he's so stoic. You're like, well, he's not doing anything wrong, mm-hmm. and yes, he's protective, but he's easy. He's not offensive, you know? You're like, if that's the guy that's going to pick her up, then... I guess. Yeah. His presence in this, I, there's just something I would love to spend some time unpacking. Like, just who, what is the deal with Richard Gere? Because his energy in this, I find so intriguing. I'm like, you could be the nicest guy in the world and you're going to take her back to New York and you're going to live in an apartment and laugh and wear sweaters and eat bagels and have the best time ever or you're like a serial killer like i have no fucking clue yeah i totally agree totally it's like a line between between smoldering and simmering (laughs) the finest line and it's like which way is this gonna go between smoldering and like the underground mine fires of western (laughs) pa right (laughs) 
<laughs> well, and you're like, is he retiring? You know, just because he's had this one moment of morality, does that mean that he's just abandoning this business? And He's going to build ships. <laughs> you know what he's like in this movie? He's like that episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia where Dennis gets back with his middle school sweetheart, and he's like, I'm having feelings, Mac, right. feelings, like an 11-year-old boy. And Mac is like, what are you talking about? I have feelings every day, dude. <laughs> exactly. Another red flag we get from him is he's probably the first person to ever say not all guys. Uh, he says yeah. that in there. That's true. He says not all guys hit is exactly what he says, but I was like, all right. <laughs> We, we come to be cautious of this phrase in the future. <laughs> I do What I do like about this, you know, this feels very Gary Marshall when it lands. You know, we learn that she wants a fairy tale story and we know it's, you know, she didn't have a great childhood. He comes and delivers the fairy tale and sort of narrates that the prince comes to save her. And then she spins and says that she saves the prince as well. Something mm -hmm. along those lines, which I love. And then it zooms out and we see this guy we haven't seen in a while who's yeah. Walking around, and he says, This is Hollywood. Some dreams come true. And he's speaking obviously about literal Hollywood, but he's also speaking on behalf of the movie being mm. absurd, which I loved so much. Everybody has a dream, so keep on dreaming. Right, right. I'm mad. I mean, it's so brilliant to have a romantic comedy announce to you what it's doing. I love <laughs> it. And that's the final beat. And then it's like, dink, do, do, do. Yes. <laughs> and my other favorite thing, and I'm curious about your take on this, Maggie. We were texting a little bit about the soundtrack earlier. You can tell that this movie was made in 1990, right? Because the second song that plays during the credits is a Peter Cetera song, and then it's preceded by a Roy Orbison song. And if this was an 80s movie, Peter Cetera would have been number one option. But they were like, no, no, Peter, it's the 90s. We're bringing mm -hmm. Roy back. Oh, my God, you're right. Love that. I've been saying Peter Cetera my whole life. Life, by the way, I also was, thank you. <laughs> I thought it was just a clever name. This whole time, I know. I thought he was like Peter and more. <laughs> but now I'm like, oh, is he Greek or something? <laughs> you kind of touched on this when you all had the Dirty Dancing episode which I never put together, that it was supposed to be set in, mm. like, the 50s. Oh, right. <laughs> and then it's just, like, it doesn't, can't really decide from a musical standpoint, like, what generation it wants to claim. Oh, you're right. I, Roy Orbison will never go out of style for me. But other than that, they yeah. really leaned into, like, the early 90s, late 80s soundtrack. Roxette. Must have been love. Yes. Oh, so good. That song is so good. I fucking love that song. <laughs> it's just an epic melody. These hardcore love ballads. At the beginning, he breaks up with his girlfriend, Jennifer, and then they play King of Wishful Thinking. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. As he's driving around that car that first and last time I saw it was in that movie. When she sings Prince's Kiss, it's yes. so good. They're listening to Bowie's fame in the club. Yes. Like mm -hmm. th This movie this movie does jump throughout eras in a really interesting way. Mm -hmm. This this movie's probably my introduction as a child to Roy Orbison because no one was listening to Roy oh, yeah. in the house. But like, I love Roy Orbison so much and it's such a joy. I mean, outside of the name. And who knows like what the sinking was in order just to relaunch the song. I'm sure there's a whole narrative, you know, oral history on that but like relaunching Roy Orbison after he died for this movie is a fascinating choice and what I'm grateful for he was alive at the time though wasn't he because he did I think he died in 88 oh really he did a duet with Katie right, right. Lang which like so was she famous in the 80s she was on her way she was already like a queer icon in Nashville I'm looking it up I'm sorry 88 is when he died. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. They made a, a music video with him in it for the uh, movie. Well, that's foreshadowing for what we have now. Pretty Woman is also, like, Dirty Dancing and that this was a movie that, like, they could not figure out what to call it. They struggled with it for 
a really long time and finally get settled on a title that like I think no one really liked all that much like mm. I think one of the suggestions for the title was 3000 <laughs> or something but they're like no it sounds like she's an astronaut <laughs> I did hear that yeah because that's her rate for the week $3000 yeah did you both watch this as children and know this was a movie about sex work yes it's my first R-rated movie that I watched at my friend Melinda Ball's house. Oh, wow. And I remember some of the scenes just being totally scandalized, and then others that I watched as an adult that I was like, oh, there's that's a blowjob that's about to happen, and just all sorts of things that I was mm, like, yes. <laughs> totally over my head as a child. Yeah, it, it's kind of like Clueless for me, where I, I remember actually, this was so weird, like, my, I remember my dad taking me to Blockbuster. I would have been 10 or 11, and I picked it, and he rented it. And then we were, like, watching it together, and neither of us really liked it. Mm. And I think I was uncomfortable watching it with my dad, but also I, like, really genuinely couldn't find my way in. And so after about an hour, he was like, let's not... Eh. And like, but, like, a lot of the movie had already happened. So, like, I don't know if he was uncomfortable or if we both generally were uninterested in it when I and then when I fell in love with it it was like it was when I was 19 and I remember just getting it at a record store that had dollar VHSs and probably still does I hope it still does and I guess bonded with it and I realized that you know one of the reasons that I did have a hard time getting into it is that like they do have kind of an awkward meet-cute, you know? It's like it yeah. goes on for a while. Like, they're uncomfortable with each other and kind of negotiating with each other for, like, a couple of long scenes there. It's really interesting to watch. There's no chemistry until a half hour in. Yes! We don't even see the signature flowing red locks until a half hour in. Right? <laughs> yeah. They unveil. Like, that part to me is huge. Ballsy. It's got her Carol Channing hair. <laughs> right, yes. And then that's her revealing her true self to us in physical form. Yeah. I wasn't prepared also in, again, watching this movie and not realizing that I'd seen it so many times that I remember so much about it, that we were in for an actual dad storyline. Mm-hmm. You always don't expect it, and it's like you're going into a corn maze, and you're like, I don't think this one has scary ghosts in it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And then it turns out, and it's not even, like, figurative. It's just, like, it's this guy against his dad's ghost, and then a woman who saves his ass. And it's the key of his whole character, too. It's like, she's like the Tomb Raider. She, it's like, go in, like, find the jewel of his dad feelings, and... Remove it from the monkey's paw, and then he will. His heart will break free. Just merely by asking a question about it. Yes, and by taking some baths. You gotta, you gotta bathe him. You gotta ask him about his dad, and then bathe him after midnight. And have close-up shots of Richard Gere's left nipple. Oh yeah. Richard Gere was just an like a sex symbol for such a long time, for like decades and decades. He's hot. Oh yeah. It's it's the smoldering sizzling. Is he how's he doing now? He's still hot. <laughs> Look up Richard Gere and you'll be like, oh yeah, that old ass still has some <laughs> some secrets. <laughs> Sarah, what is the deal with Richard Richard's dad? Richard Gere's dad was a big businessman who left Richard Gere and his mom, who was the starter wife, and moved on, just left them behind. And so Richard Gere, he, had, he died recently in the movie's events, and Richard Gere's character hadn't talked to him in 14 and a half years, mm -hmm. he says. So we know he's keeping track of it to half a year. There's like an interesting thing culturally going on in the movie too, because like this is the height of corporate rating. Like this is mm. the height in which there were movies about this. And it turns out that like Richard Gere's dad was probably an old school businessman mm. and Gere gets back at him by rating his business. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's right. We learn that, like, part of the drama, and that's it's beautifully stated about the fact that, you know, Richard Gere's from his first family and then his dad disappears. And his payback is he guts his dad's business, you know, turns it into a bunch of pieces and then sells it over a number of years, which, like, mm -hmm. we just talked about Greek castration myth in our last episode or a couple, of, depending on when this comes out, a couple episodes ago. And, like, Richard mm -hmm. Gere does it through 80s Reaganism to his dad, which is amazing. Yeah, you're right. Cuts 
cuts his dad's dick right off with business. And he's like, and I'm coming for Ralph Bellamy's dick, too, and I got a whole closet full of dicks. <laughs> okay, his relationship with Jason Alexander I love. And I would say that to me it's a testament to how great Jason Alexander is that, like, I do not feel a whiff of George Costanza about this character. Yes. Like, no. th this guy is odious in a totally different way. It's fascinating. He's imbued with an entirely different spirit. <laughs> Neither of them particularly likable, though. No, although George is like, well, I don't know. That's a whole episode right there. <laughs> right. The scene where everything comes to a head, basically, throughout this movie, Julia Roberts' character, Vivian, has been winning over Richard Gere's character, Edward. And in the end, he's like, I don't want to go through with this corporate rating deal that me and my partner and lawyer, Philip Stuckey, have been working on for a year now. Like, I changed my mind. I want to build things. I don't want to destroy Ralph Bellamy's life and keep living out my fantasy of destroying my dad. And that's the part where Stuckey basically comes to the hotel room where Vivian is and is waiting for Edward to come back and tries to assault her. And Edward appears fortuitously and throws him off. And that's when he's like, not all men hit. But as he's throwing Philip out, I was just watching it. And I was like, you know, this is a guy who at the start of this movie broke up with his girlfriend over a phone call and then never appeared to feel a single thing about it. Like he was just done. And he doesn't appear to have particular feelings about his ex-wife either or any of his exes, really. She gets to have that sort of Taylor Swift fantasy of being like the first person to touch the heart of a bad boy mm. but philip stuckey is coming in and i was like he's the wife like he's the one who edward's married to yeah and he's the one who feels betrayed by vivian coming in and changing edward and he says to him he's like i gave you 10 years of my life like please don't go and edward's like it's the kill you love not me yeah i love that line because i kind of that was something upon rewatching that I was like, no, he didn't just abandon George Costanza. No, I'm sorry, Stucky. There is a very <laughs> definite line. But he was like, I made you a very rich man doing exactly what you love doing. Mm -hmm. So it was convenient for him to have this cash cow like Edward to be able to do what he enjoyed, ruthlessly making money off other people's failed businesses. So it felt kind of mm. more wrapped up. Like, I, I think if you ever find your friend assaulting your significant other, then that's probably a deal breaker. But it's also not a meaningful relationship that was ending. And I think he's coming to that realization as well, that what he's doing was amoral, but mm. it also was very fruitful business arrangement for Stucky. Mm -hmm. If he's married to Stucky, which I would agree that that's where he was at, he realized his marriage was a sham. Yes. Th they both came together under different pretenses than where they're at now. And, you know, he's pretty radical even compared to now because he finds out his friend is an assailant or he finds out his friend yeah. assaults women and he uh, actually abandons him, which is shouldn't be radical, but that is a radical take. Yeah, good job, Edward. Zero tolerance. Stucky's a bit of a parasite. It wasn't like this great symbiotic relationship where they were doing things together who's sort of just leeching off of being Edward's attorney. Yeah. And then continuing to leech off his girlfriend. Soon to be. Yeah. Right. And he's saying that he, Stucky, values him for his ability to go in and be heartless and carve up these companies and he's recognizing that he wants to prioritize a relationship where he's valued for being kind of a good person sometimes a little. I wonder where, where Jason Alexander would have landed had Seinfeld not happened. I think he would have been a gritty character actor. Yeah, you're right. But he was also a Broadway guy. Like, he won a Tony in the 80s. Yeah, I think he's still, he still appears. Mm -hmm. He reemerged with great nobility in Shallow Hal as well. Mm, <laughs> yeah. Geez. That movie was really... That movie was... <laughs> That was a movie. There's something uniquely cruel about the early 2000s. That was a movie, in a sense, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, what does this movie have to say about sex work? Oh, my God. <laughs> Thank you, Alex, <laughs> for this wonderful question. <laughs> well, with the caveat that I am not and have never been a sex worker, so I, fundamentally I don't really have perspective on that. I do have perspective on this movie, which I have seen one million times. Well, it's interesting. Like, okay, here's something I thought of recently. I was watching Moulin Rouge, which is also about a sex worker 
who just does not want to do sex work at all. She's like, basically the deal is like, she has to do the girlfriend experience with the Duke for several weeks, like while they do rehearsals for the show and which she'll be a real actress. So it's like, she's financing the show through sex and girlfriend experience. And so it's like, they sign this deal, but then she finds a way to like, basically never actually have sex with the Duke because she's in love with Christian and it would be too damaging for her and for him if she were to have sex with anyone she's not in love with. And I was like, you know, I love this movie, but like, this is just a bad line of work for her. Like she, if she can't have sex without loving someone, then she shouldn't have this job. And like, presumably like falling in love with Christian made her feel differently. And I guess that's a, the, a, the big factor with Vivian, too, that's interesting. And what's interesting about Vivian is, like, she has a pretty clear set of boundaries. She's like, I don't kiss on the mouth. I'm sure that's partly because, you know, you just don't want to do that with a lot of people. But also, I think she's like, I am very prone to catching feelings for jerks. Mm. So I'm just going to try and not do that. And she's like, you know, I'm like a robot when I'm with a guy. But there's also like, and I just kind of can't believe it's in the movie. I think it's amazing that it is the scene where like, it's their first night together. They they don't have chemistry yet. They don't quite know how to relate to each other. And so it's it feels like she really is his niece. Yes. Or his daughter or something. She's like lying on the carpet watching I Love Lucy and kind of rolling around laughing. And he's like doing business while she watches TV. And then he, like, comes over and sits closer to her. And she's like, okay, blowjob time. And then she mutes, I love Lucy. But she's <laughs> still going to watch it. She keeps sneaking little looks at it. Kind of giggles right before <laughs> she begins. Like, this is... <laughs> yeah, and it's like, that just feels very real for a sex act depicted in any Hollywood yeah. movie. And especially this, like, big romantic movie that's kind of made fun of a lot it's like i don't know like you don't see a lot of people like leaving their show on while they go down on somebody <laughs> <laughs> yeah like quote real sex is always like gross like it's always like hard to watch right they're like oh real sex you mean sad sex right and it's like no yeah. just like people aren't lit so great all the time yeah. and then he reciprocates when they're down in the piano bar like the next day he goes down on her I didn't actually realize that before but he's like very clearly that was a rewatch revelation right and he's watching Murphy Brown in the background and he's like will you all excuse me <laughs> yeah, right. he's watching the McLaughlin group <laughs> It was interesting seeing the hoops this movie jumped through in order to have sex work be a part of it. Like, it was like, mm. it refers to everyone as hookers for the most part, like, exclusively. Like, we weren't yet calling people sex workers in, in the public pop culture discourse yet. That's still not in movies, I don't think. It's not two poles. I was going to say the two poles are either, like, sex workers who do drugs and die or sex workers who don't do anything outside of being sex workers. They don't do anything transgressive at all, and they live. And those are yeah. the two poles. But I forgot her friend is actually the middle ground in this. There is a middle ground person. Yes. So there's three kinds of sex workers. There's do drugs and die, there's stay clean and live, and there's Laura San Giacomo. Like Goldilocks bearers of Just Shoot Me fame, right? Yeah. And there's Skinny Marie, who is pulled out of a dumpster in the beginning of the movie. Yeah. A little dark plot points introduced there, drugs, but it does kind of makes it more familiar and accessible, this idea of sex working. Yeah. And she is very sensitive. In the beginning, all of her boyfriend's faces are scratched out of the photos, and mm -hmm. Kit, her friend, alludes to the fact that, you know, I'm not going to comfort you when you're crying over this guy again. So there's a little peek into her past and the fact that she has nursed a few heartbreaks and and has these major feelings. She's very defensive. I never noticed until watching yesterday just how obscene the rubbernecking is everywhere she goes. Yes. And mm -hmm. I'm like, I would wear that outfit, maybe. Like, it's just not yeah. as crazy to see someone in thigh-high boots walking down... Hollywood Boulevard wearing what she was wearing, but I guess at the time... Or I guess Syracuse or something. Right. Yeah, yeah, anywhere. 
And I thought that that was a little interesting to watch, almost comical, just to see how every scene, they make sure that all the bystanders are just, like, giving her major gawks. Yeah. It works so well because it's, like, it becomes it becomes part of jokes, like, when she confronts people, which is really fun and often satisfying. But but also, like, you know, I don't know how thought out it was where it's, like, this is how we look at... <laughs> this is how we look at people who engage in this work. Or even just, like, this is how, like, a patriarchal society looks at women generally. But, like, I thought it was, it was interesting to see all of those gawks, you know, even though they're elevated, it's like, oh, this is rough. No wonder she's going through some shit all the time. Like, she is constantly... Yeah, it's not unlike the Silence of the Lambs because it's highlighting right. a woman being continually stared at. Mm -hmm. It just gives you that kind mm. of claustrophobia. Yes. And, like, all the parts of this movie that it's easy to make fun of, like, really work. I was thinking about just, like, how I felt defensive at various times about people saying that different parts of this movie are dumb and how I think there's, like, a basic thing where people don't want things they love to be not good. I don't know overall if you can say if any movie is good or bad, but I think this movie is, like, it's very well put together. This is kind of what we said about The Silence of the Lambs. Like, the performances are really good. Everyone is cast really well for what they're being asked to do. I think the soundtrack really works for the energy that it's trying to create. You know, the settings are beautiful. Julia Roberts especially is, like, holding the whole thing together. She's, like, so charming, and, like, no one had really seen her before. No one, I think, had really seen a big movie star quite like her before either. Like, I think she seemed authentic in a way that, like, everyone knows what Julia Roberts is like now, but people didn't back then. Mm -hmm. Like, Mystic Pizza was a big break for her, but I think that and Pretty Woman was like a Jennifer Lawrence, Winter's Bone, and Hunger Games type situation. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and studios were like, we can just put this person in any movie from here right. on out and guarantee yeah. we're all going to get fucking rich. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she plays the most unlikable character in My Best Friend's Wedding, and somehow it's still yeah. so watchable because it's Julia Roberts, you know? Like, this person is awful. You're just like, look at her hair, so pretty. Yeah. But also, like, Gary Marshall just loves Los Angeles. I think he features it in a mm. really cool way. Obviously, mm -hmm. given the cross-section of people who hang out at the Reach Bev Will, we're going to see, like, a lot of yeah. white people. I wish there was a little more diversity, especially because it's... Los Angeles in the 90s, but I think that that was a point mm -hmm. that they were trying to drive home, was that, you know, this is who Edward's crew is, and that's why she's so enigmatic, and that's why we love her, because she's a breath of fresh air and, and different from what he's seeing a lot, but, you know, I think Julia Roberts, her body language in this movie is something that I'm really drawn to and that mm. it just resonated with me a lot especially in the scene with Jason Alexander assaulting her she's kind of like mm. folding in on herself and there's always a reference to how she fidgets and she's not completely comfortable in her skin even though she is you know someone who should seemingly be confident because she's a sex worker and she's using her, her physical self to get uh, her rent money her toilet rent money mm. but I love how believable that was and and watching that again yesterday in that scene it, it made me feel more uncomfortable than I've ever felt watching it because it just felt mm. real and I've been in those situations too where you want to just be as small as you can and disappear and as goofy and charming and amiable as she is there's also just like this vulnerability that's really beautiful about her and her character oh yeah mm. I think Gary Marshall did an amazing job. Great job, Gary Marshall, my imaginary grandpa. <laughs> she just has almost this, like, Liv Ullman quality. Like, her face just kind of shows emotion really well. Like, this movie really shows off, like, her forehead veins mm. that kind of, like, pulse when she's, when she's crying or, like, emoting something difficult. Like, it's just... She just has this beautiful open book face in this movie. And also, like, there's something about <laughs> the way this is structured, too, that reminds me of the Olsen twins classic, It Takes Two. <laughs> 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 Where 
the Olsen twin who grew up blue collar and now she's pretending to be the rich Olsen twin. She has that cute relationship with like the butler played by Philip Bosco. And this is kind of how it is with Hector Elizondo in this movie, right? Yes! I love Hector Elizondo in this movie. He's so great. Outside of how he starts. He doesn't start great, but we get there. He warms up pretty quickly. He's my favorite. Yeah, I thought that he was he was very quick to, to understand Vivian's charms and Barney, who calls that girl who obviously has a crush on him hmm. at the boutique. She's like, he's very sweet. So I feel like he has a whole side story <laughs> that I'd like to explore. <laughs> yeah. I love how Julie Roberts says to him that we're a part of the real world. Like, she relates to him at, like, we serve these people. Mm. She's like, we're on the same team, which is a really cool detail. Mm-hmm. It's funny, because, like, today, both Barney and Bridget could have, like, Bravo reality shows, and they could be on <laughs> each other's reality shows, and then they could have a special where they get married. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on a yacht. <laughs> Oh my god, it's so good. But even Sarah's point about Vivian kind of putting on airs to look like she was more a part of this high society atmosphere. She's like, I'm going to take a cab. Mm. And then she wants to save the $20 she just made. She decides to take the bus and she says, I like the bus. You know, it's like, I'm not taking it out of necessity. I'm taking it because Mm -hmm. I enjoy taking the bus. And a lot of different scenes like that where she's clearly trying to fit in they're at the restaurant with the morses and mm-hmm. like, i'm gonna use the ladies room she's just adorable and as we see it from mm-hmm. their eyes and then he offers to order for her and she's like yeah please do that and is editing herself <laughs> in real time and yeah. you know, she's she's trying yeah. to play ball and there's something kind of endearing about that that also just makes me a little sad when I watch it because you're like you're lucky to be around Vivian Edward yeah yeah no one cares what fork you use it's fine yeah and also that like they're they're at this dinner with Ralph Bellamy who's the owner of the company that Edward is trying to destroy and it's like he hires her for the week I feel like possibly partly because he's like very charmed by her And, like, you know, likes having her around and everything, but is also, I think maybe he's, like, these other shitty businessmen will also be charmed by her. Like, she's there's something special happening, and they are. Like, everyone loves her. It ends up working too well because he decides he doesn't want to do the deal at all, but, like, she's kind of... Everybody likes Vivian. I want to talk about the Ralph Bellamy thing. There's such an on-the-nose Why Our Dads piece that happens with him that we need to Mm -hmm. talk about. But I want to ask you, Maggie, how much of her having to be around those people did you relate to in parts of your life? Very much so, especially the dinner scene. Mm. I had a lot of people talking on my behalf, especially early on in my career at settings like that, discussing the level of play on this radio station that the current single I had would get. And I felt very in control of my faculties and of the situation. I knew what was going on, but I didn't feel like I was often the mouthpiece. And I know that Vivian isn't in the know about all the inner workings of his business, but she was kind of there to placate and be a bit of an accessory, a bargaining Mm. chip, like... Sarah's saying to be more appealing to these people that Edward's trying to savagely profit off of. I don't know. I I think that it was, it's strange to watch. I wish also that we got that moment in this movie to really see her like holding her own, but there was no sequel for us. She's kind of got it when she's like, big mistake, huge. I get that part (laughs) on Rodeo Drive, but yeah. And the niece thing, I missed that reference when I was watching it as a younger child and adult where it didn't sit as well with me this time. I was like, (laughs) especially when Bridget, Barney's girlfriend, who's the crush on Barney was like, they never are, dear. Yes. She said, he's not my uncle, Bridge. And mm-hmm. she seemed to know exactly what she was talking about. And I was like, no, why is that just like, why are we so <laughs> familiar with this hypothetical situation where we all have fake uncles? 
So that part was a little yeah. weird. Mm-hmm. This is how we do it down at the Regent Beverly Wilshire. <laughs> right. I asked that because I'm obviously curious about your experience, but I also, I'm looking at both Sarah, who's a, a personality in a specific kind of world, and you are a personality in a specific kind of world. And this movie reminds me of someone trying to be a human within an industry set. Mm. It's secondary to the movie, but everything he does, like down to the going to this the racetrack event or whatever that is, is related to business. Like not any of it has to do with his personal interests and just watching a human being trying to survive in that arena which like a lot of Nashville is is it's like people trying to be people in an industry town that stuck out to me maybe because I knew we were talking to you but that stuck out to me more this time than it has in the past absolutely and when Vivian asked Edward you know maybe the reason you're so intrigued by me is because these are who your friends are and they're at this polo match and (laughs) everyone's awful oh you're the flavor of the month says one woman to oh this, God, to Vivian, whom she's just met for the first time. Even uh, Stucky's wife, who seems pleasant enough in the first scene, mm-hmm. just totally disregards meeting her. And she's always oh, nice to meet one of Edward's girls. So these are awful people. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really want to be there, but it's the right thing to do politically. He has hired her because he can't go stag to all these events. He has to appear as mm-hmm. someone who's attached. And there's a lot of pomp and circumstance that I feel like we all need to sort of comply with and I myself too Sarah I'm not the sex worker so the caveat is that when I say this but her saying I say when I say who I say how much Mm -hmm. as an independent artist in this industry (laughs) I feel that yeah because I too I'm like you know I'm gonna do what I want and yes there are things that might be more accessible if I got the proverbial pimp in this industry, but mm. it's mm. it's nice to be able to make those determinations for yourself. And she does seem pretty professional about it. She talks about the first time that she actually worked as a sex worker. She cried the entire night, but then she started getting regulars and, and however she tells the story to him. But it seems just like someone who had to do this out of necessity and is trying to still maintain some semblance of independence and autonomy and and dignity. Yeah. I think she she does that somehow in in what we see. My other thought about Moulin Rouge when I was watching it was I was like, oh, this is a movie about making a movie. Yeah. <laughs> like this is about financing a movie by kind of like kind of agreeing to do something you really don't want to do and then just kind of avoiding the person you promised until you're done with the movie or something you know mm. and and again it's like how i think when artists like make stories about sex workers which is like also a very popular theme in opera i feel like it's often about just like being an artist and dealing with patronage yeah i mean it's an exchange of non-fungible items like that we're, tr- <laughs> we're we're bringing <laughs> pleasure to the consumer and that pleasure comes in a form that is subjective and all the criticisms that come with that it's not equal across the board to Mm. whoever's hearing it or receiving the services but also just the first scene where the guy drives by and is like it's my birthday can I have a freebie and it's like dream on I that I don't know I think I'd be really terrible at doing this because I would just lose my shit all the time and then the, the binary there to to the arts in one way or another is like this assumption on the part of people who believe that just because you're available in a specific context you're available all the time mm. like like Jason Alexander's assault yes it's a picture of a specific assault but it also comes from this place it's portrayed from this place where he assumes that because she is a sex worker she's available at any given time which i think is like also an expectation people have about people who make things that like you make a thing Mm. you make things in this context i expect stuff from you all the time absolutely well and speaking of stucky i feel like i love that this movie knows that it's creepy when they're at the polo match Edward has just told Stucky that Stucky's like, where did you find her? Everyone's like, where did this Vivian come from? And he's like, I picked her up on Sunset Boulevard. She was plying her wares. (laughs) And he doesn't say that. And so Stucky 
like goes up to her and he's like, and maybe we can uh, get together when Edward's out of town. And then he like strokes her arm. Oh yeah, yeah. And then he has to go. His wife's calling him, but it's it's so creepy. And I guess his hook finger. That one finger on the arm. The one finger. Ugh. Yes, and how and how long it goes on, and he, you think it's ending, and it doesn't end. It just feels like. Even now, like, a new horizon to ask people to take creepy arm touches seriously. And it's like, there, see it? Look at that. Look how creepy that is. It's creepy. Mm. But, yeah, I think that accessibility is a a problem right now for creators. Uh, it's, It's putting undue pressure on a lot of creators, too, especially during a time where there are numerable outlets to just entertain and and to maintain and keep up with and oh god tiktok is like stressing me out and now i'm <laughs> supposed to get on that too and i think it's Ugh. just this constant outpouring and expectation to just have consistent output vivian and i can probably agree that like sometimes you don't want to hit that alarm clock and hit the boulevard at 7 p.m mm. my alarm clock goes off at different times but still we share in that I don't want to be available. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also, this is like, you know, the dream of any creative person in L.A. to get some weird guy with money to inexplicably fall in love with you and then give you a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> but but be Richard Gere, ideally. Ideally. And be smoldering, not simmering. <laughs> if Stucky weren't, you know, an attempted rapist, like, oh, yeah, I'd marry a Stucky. I don't know. It's, it's uh, don't, don't bypass the Stuckies of the world. By which I mean short, bald guys, not terrible guys. <laughs> but even that shitty comment he made about his wife in the beginning is like, my wife called a caterer. She had to work so hard. And he's kind of like yeah. making undermining his wife's efforts for this party. I was like, this guy's a dick from the very beginning. Yes. Don't speak ill of Amy Yazbeck. <laughs> It took me a second to get that he was being a dick. It finally clicked, but I was like, was ordering a caterer a new thing? And then I got it, and I was like, oh, okay, that's what he's, he's just terrible. Oh, right. You're like, oh, it's 1990. Had caterers just been invented, and it was, like, really difficult. <laughs> Sarah, can you walk us through the um, uh, Bellamy piece, like the resolution with our dad times? It's very tidy wrap-up in our dad drama, and I like it. It's fantastic. Okay, so Ralph Bellamy, who was in trading places and also i think he was in his girl friday he's a classic old-time movie star and so he's playing a guy whose company richard gear is going to buy and carve up like a leg of cured ham and he's just going to destroy the old man and so at the start of it there's a little bit of drama because stucky's like oh my god the old man is going to try and get this new contract that's going to drive up their stock prices and make them solvent, and they won't be vulnerable enough that we can buy them out anymore. And Edward's like, let's talk to some of the politicians that we have in our pockets, and they'll stop that from being possible, because I'm going (laughs) to screw the old man. (laughs) And then they go out to dinner, him and Vivian and the old man and his grandson, and he's like, I'm going to screw you, old man. And the old man's like, no, you won't. And he's like, yes, I will. I outmaneuvered you well by. <laughs> and then basically he gets to know Vivian, they fall in love. And I mean, is there a moment really when he decides, when he changes his mind, or is he just like, Vivian is right. She's like, so it's like you steal a car and sell it for parts, huh? I do love that there is not a moment where if this movie was made five years later or closer to now, there would have been, like, the, the studio executives would be like, we need to know where the moment happens and we need yes. to see him point to the moment. He looks at a little boy building something and right. he's like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> it's just through his evolution of character and being around a cool lady yeah. that he becomes less of a dick and we get to understand how that happens so how does that occur yeah and then he decides that he doesn't want to buy out the company and strip it for parts and throw the original owners out he wants to become co-owners of the company with ralph bellamy and he wants to build ships big great big ships they're gonna build giant ships together like what could be better a man the man and the boy (laughs) that was the line that sent stucky over the edge (laughs) 
And Bellamy, who they kicked off on the wrong foot in their first meeting, which was real tense, Bellamy puts his hand on Richard Gere's shoulder yes. like a dad. Yes. He says, I don't know how to say this in a way that's not condescending, but I'm proud of you. Yeah. Man I've just met. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like the Field of Dreams playing baseball with your dead dad situation. Yes. But, you know, figuratively. <laughs> Maybe his dad looked kind of like Ralph Bellamy. <laughs> <laughs> Remember when Gary Marshall played uh, the devil in uh, Hocus Pocus? Yes, I do. Yeah. <laughs> I love that character so much. Yes. We have to talk about the shopping in this, by the way. I don't want to end and accidentally not talk about the shopping. Oh, my yeah. God. I can't believe we haven't talked about that. <laughs> Maggie, can you tell us about what happens in the arena of shopping in this movie? Is there a lot of shopping in this movie or what? Do people <laughs> shop in this? <laughs> Just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> a few transactions occur. Um, she becomes a clothes horse about halfway through the movie. I'm like, why did, does she have the time to change this outfit? She even has a full-length <laughs> silk nightgown. She did not leave any stone mm. unturned on the shopping trip. You know, Bridget helps her in the beginning, but she only purchases the one dress which is i do remember all the clothes in this movie because they are a bit of a highlight mm -hmm. but she wears the one black dress that she gets with bridget but she goes to that shop on rodeo drive they're less than welcoming to her and not answering her questions about how much this item costs suggesting that I don't think this would fit you or work for you. It's very expensive, and I look great with my hair all piled up on top of my head. Yes. Oh, they were kind of like, if you go to an old nail salon and you see the cartoons of, like, a glamorous woman with her nails, they look just like that. <gasps> they do look like that. Yeah, they look like they're from a Robert Palmer music video. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> She's AHA, the music video personified. <laughs> And so she is very rudely rebuffed Vivian and goes home with just one dress that she's purchased, even though Edward has given her enough money to buy several outfits. But I think this also says something about Vivian. Mm. She wants to feel welcomed. It's more important to her that she feels mm. like she belongs than it is to just amass all these new pieces in her wardrobe. And she needs quite a bit of greasing the wheel from Edward accompanying her to go shopping and that one what well, who is that actor who's like how obscene are we talking the money that you're gonna spend? oh it's it's the guy from 10 things I hate about you yes yeah, I, I love that guy yes. <laughs> but he's just very sleazy but still does a great job and manages to sell Vivian an entire wardrobe, more clothes than I've purchased in the last five years. <laughs> and in that scene, which I love so much, like, I love movies like this that don't know what they have to say about capitalism. Like, are they trying to glorify it by everything that happens in it while also saying things like he says to her, which is something along the lines of, like, businesses aren't nice to you, they're nice to your credit card, mm -hmm. something along those lines, mm -hmm. which is, like, such an on-point criticism of... <laughs> You are not a human. You're just a vehicle for spending money. <laughs> right. Which really drives that point home with the rapport between 10 Things I Hate About You, Dad, and Edward. Well, they're just, like, accepting and being super upfront about the fact that they're like, this is transactional. I'll give you money. Yes. You treat her well. Yes. And it's just, you know, very black and white. So I appreciate that part of the capitalists in both of them. <laughs> Yeah, he's so fun in this, where he's, where Edward's like, I need, I'm going to need more flattery. And he's like, okay, well, you're a very commanding man. I knew the second you came in. <laughs> yes. But he's like, it's for her. He does it in secrecy so that Vivian isn't yeah. super aware that all the attention being directed at her is yeah. being purchased. And he wants her to feel special. And what's wrong with that? Oh, Yeah. And that's where we see him operating in the realm that he understands. And he's like, I understand money and getting people to suck up to me and buying things. And we are going to, I'm going to buy things for you. And I'm going to get these people to understand that you deserve respect in this arena. And that's what I can do for you. Yeah, I love that this movie is, is all about money. We open with like a magic trick with giant coins, and then the whole thing <laughs> yeah. is just all about money. And we can see him oh, yeah. progressing and learning and like showing him he loves her with money, and then showing he's changed with like purchasing things or not purchasing things or purchasing things differently. <laughs> like, it's
that's like that's very honest. Letting a lady in and getting over his dad shit all <laughs> while swimming in cash. Yes. <laughs> it's just like this movie is about money. <laughs> <laughs> You're so right about the opening scene and the magician with the coins. Isn't that great? That's so weird, right? It's like if we missed it, it's your fault. We showed you right at the top of the movie. <laughs> and like I'm an anti-capitalist and I fucking love watching that lady shop. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, I made a connection about the value of clothing to Vivian because the only reference, mm. knowing that we were going to talk about this, that she makes to her family is her mother, who didn't treat her very well and locked her upstairs in the attic. Mm -hmm. But then the reason she knows how to tie a tie is because of her grandfather, who she really loved. Mm -hmm. And just the association of this article of clothing being connected Aww. to a man who was somewhat of a father figure in her life and then adjusting his tie throughout the movie. Hmm. Clothes mean something to her. Right, and giving him a tie. It's not just this frivolous thing, and I didn't really notice that. Oh, that's great. Like, clothes are a big deal. And it's such a daddy item. It's like men's professional wear. And then he actually wears it. Like, he seems to like it. And Stucky notices it. And it's the symbol. Exactly, yeah. exactly. It's, that's when Stucky, his first wife, as you're saying, Sarah, is like, you've changed. Look at her. You got her all over you with the tie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got his ties. Like, she means something to you. This isn't part of the deal. Megan, that's so good. <laughs> But I also love, you know, I've talked about and written about Anna Nicole Smith, and one of the things that I always like to argue with people about is, you know, this knee-jerk reaction people have of, like, isn't it terrible to be a gold digger and let an old rich oil tycoon spend a ton of money on you? And it's just like, why? Like, show me why. Like, where would that, would there have been wetlands that would exist now that don't because Anna Nicole Smith got some cute clothes, or would it have just, like, stayed in trust until it, you know, went to, like, some other crazy Texas millionaire. Like, why do they deserve it more than her? And I love that this movie makes you cheer for this woman who, in an, a news story, it, like, clearly, like, as the 90s played out, we weren't capable of encountering someone like her in kind of news or tabloid media and seeing her as having earned this money or this stuff. But, like, in the world of the movie, she absolutely does, and you know that when you watch it. Yeah, absolutely. So I heard that Steven Seagal was originally cast for the role of Edward. <gasps> what? So before we talk about what? daddies, I just felt like I at least had to throw that little morsel out there for us. From Under Siege? I don't know if, like, I was being punked when I was told this, but... I'm pretty sure that's verified. A lot of weird casting decisions have been made briefly or permanently. Well, we know that Steven Seagal was almost in this movie, mm -hmm. and we know that there are some fathers discussed, but who was the daddy? Hmm. I'm going to say Laura San Giacomo, or Kit, oh. who is Vivian's roommate, because she's she's not a role model. She takes some rent money, she does some drugs, but she's the one who shows up and gives you a reality check and gives you a place to stay and lets you work on her corner with her and loves you very much and says, send a fucking Rella. So I feel like there are just so many like crappy, like nothing roles for genuinely very funny, very good women in 90s movies that you just have to watch. Like, Sarah Silverman was cast in a lot of really pointless roles where you're just like, why is she here? This is just a waste of her time. Like, I hope they gave her good snacks, at least. <laughs> but Kit, I feel like, is, is such a fun role to watch because, like, when she's there, she has really great lines. She's, she's contributing something with this character. Like, she's the reality check, and she's... She's a friend who really loves her, and they love each other, and they say, take care of you, and, like, I say that uh, to people, and yeah. I guess I love it when girlfriends love each other in movies. It doesn't happen enough, so Kit's the daddy. I love that choice, <laughs> but I do love their protection of each other. My daddy, just to offer another option, is Barney, the mm -hmm. general manager of the hotel. Oh, yeah. Mm. You know, he is kind of judgmental in the beginning 
you know, off the bat, he lays down the ground rules and says, you know, you're going to be understood as the niece here, and after this week is over, I won't see you back here, and he's kind of a jerk, but then he comes around and is even in very important and instrumental in reuniting Edward and Vivian at the end because he says, hey, she got a ride home in the limo, so otherwise, without Barney's assistance... Edward would never have known how to make that grand gesture at the end of the movie and find where Vivian lives because Barney kind of helped put all those pieces together. So he was protecting mm. Vivian in a sense and, and doing what he could without being completely overbearing to make sure that Edward knew that he was blowing his chance to redeem himself with Vivian. So he's, he's a daddy, but Kit's totally a daddy, too. And also Hector Elizondo, who I think was in every Gary Marshall movie, just, like, doesn't he just look sort of angelic, just the way he looks he at He looks so people? great. Yeah, he's just, like, he's looking, he's looking down at these mortals, you know, just, like, trying to figure it out, and, and he, you know... He's the stage yeah, manager great. of the whole production that's yeah. going on at the hotel. Yeah. And I don't feel like Vivian ever has to avoid the male gaze when it comes to him. No. Mm. You know, he's, he's seems just protective of her, and that's probably why she connected with him, because, like you said, Alex, she's... Like, we're, we're both of the working class, or whatever the mm. word she used were to show their, their common bond, and there's something familial about their relationship that I liked. Yeah, I agree. But mine is just, is Gary Marshall <laughs> uh, setting up the last line in this movie again? The last line in this, and I'm setting up Gary Marshall because we get more time with Gary Marshall than we do this actual man who delivers this line, mm -hmm. who unfortunately for the movie is like one of the only speaking lines for a person of color. Mm -hmm. But the person says, Welcome to Hollywood. What's your dream? Everyone comes here. This is Hollywood, land of dreams. Some dreams come true, some don't. But keep on dreaming. This is Hollywood. Always a time to dream, so keep on dreaming. That's how Gary Marshall ended this movie. Yes. All of our daddies. Yes. Like, that's him tucking you in. And that's the story of Julia Roberts and how she taught the corporate raider to love his fellow man. Good night, sweetheart. Good night. No bother Good me. Good night, darling. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Why Your Dads. Thank you to Maggie Rose for being our wonderful guest and talking about Pretty Woman. Thank you to our wonderful producer and music director, Carolyn Kendrick, for uh, just for, for making the show sound so good every week. We really appreciate it. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for the beats. Thank you for listening to the show. Please find us on social media, Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash wiredads. I am on TikTok, which, you know, it's, if that's your thing, I'm over there. And join us next week for a conversation about Blue Valentine with Esme Wang. We had a wonderful time talking about this very sad movie. <laughs> I hope you will join us. All right. That's enough from us. Thank you so much for joining us.